Welcome to 721 Live. I'm Sam Hunter, and I am glad that you're with us today. Thank you for joining us. It's Friday. Friday's always good days, and we're going to talk more about prayer. We're going to talk about prayer for this week, next week, probably a few more weeks after that. We've been talking about prayer because it is such a rich and deep topic, subject, area of our following Jesus and and following our Heavenly Father that is so ambiguous with so many questions. And, and so today we're going to jump on a couple of those questions and ask and answer them. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Let me first remind you that 721 Live is the radio arm of 721 Ministries. We have a website, 721ministries.org, 721ministries.org. You can find past radio shows there. You can find our Vimeo channel. There's a lot of charts. There's a lot of things you can pick up on that website, 721ministries.org. And I encourage you to go back and check out some of these past shows because we've been talking about prayer for four or five weeks now. And it just keeps building. It just keeps building. Now, we do have a sister website, puttinggreenblog.com, puttinggreenblog.com. And on that site, you can sign up for our weekly devotionals. We call them Putting Greens, uh, free of charge, of course. And we've got books. And we've got another book coming out shortly, which I'll tell you about in just another two or three weeks. But you can go to puttinggreenblog.com and check out everything we have to offer there. Okay, prayer. Now, you've, if, you listen, if you've listened to these shows before, this series before, and if you go back and listen to them, you'll notice something, and that is that I'm not really trying to teach you how to pray. We don't have any five-point lessons on how to pray. And that's, there's two reasons for that, I think. One, I'm not sure I'm qualified to teach anybody how to pray. But number two, and most importantly, I'm following the Master teacher, Jesus, who didn't spend a lot of time teaching anybody how to pray. As a matter of fact, when his disciples in Luke 11, in Luke 11, you find the Lord's Prayer. It's a shorter version than in the Matthew 6 version. I'm sure Jesus, over three and a half years, used this on more than one occasion. Luke records a shorter version. But at the very beginning of Luke 11, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, come to him and say, teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples how to pray, John the baptizer. Well, Jesus does not pull out a chart. He does not pull out a whiteboard or a papyrus paper or anything like that. He just says, hey, pray like this. And he gives them a four-line, five-line prayer at most. Just He says, you know how to pray. Just pray. So I'm not trying to give you points on how to pray. What I am trying to do is two things. One, get you comfortable and confident in approaching your Heavenly Father who loves you perfectly comfortable and confident to the point where you are you are experiencing a conversational prayer life throughout the day not just designated times which are fine not just formal prayers which are fine but really more dominated by just a conversational prayer relationship where you're in and out and I think I mean I think it's very clear that the Holy Spirit through through Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, 18 be joyful always pray continually not every second you're breathing, but on and off all day. Give thanks in all circumstances. So if I, if I can accomplish that, get you comfortable and confident to where you're just approaching your Heavenly Father. And then the second thing is to debunk some many misconceptions about prayer. 
And some of them are actually what I would call misinformation or myths about prayer. But let me start with one today, and it's a neat little story. It's about three hermits who live on an isolated island, uh, and it, it, it's a fun little story. It's a short one, but it debunks the whole idea of formal prayer. So you see there was a bishop, and he was traveling by on a fishing boat to a certain monastery, and he overheard some of the sailors talking about these three men, these three hermits that lived a very Spartan existence on a remote island, and that they were focused on seeking salvation for their souls. Well, this piqued the bishop's interest, and he told the captain of the ship he wanted to go and meet these three hermits who prayed for the salvation for their souls. And the captain said, that's ridiculous. You know, these are, they're not worth your time. They're foolish old fellows. They have nothing to say. They hardly ever talk. But the bishop was insistent on it. So when they get to the island, he meets the three hermits, and he informs them that he has heard of them and that they are ser- about their search for salvation. So he inquires just how they are seeking salvation and serving God. But the hermits say that they do not know how, only that they pray simply, three are you, three are we, have mercy on us. Three are you, the Trinity, three are we, three hermits, have mercy on us. Well, the bishop says, well, we we can do a whole lot better than that. And he says, well, you got a little bit of knowledge, but you're ignorant of the true meaning of the doctrine and how to pray properly. So I'm going to teach you how to pray as God has commanded us in the Holy Scriptures. That kind of catches your attention there, doesn't it? And so he proceeds to explain the doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity. And he attempts to teach them the Lord's Prayer. But the simple hermits, they keep blundering and they cannot remember the words. So the bishop feels compelled to stay up all night training them how to pray. And so after he's satisfied the next day that they've memorized the prayer and he's gotten across the, the finer points of how to pray properly, he goes back, gets on the boat, and they they take off. But now the boat's leaving the area of the island. The bishop looks back, and he looks like there's a vessel following him, but he soon realizes that it's the three hermits running across the surface of the water as if they're on dry land. The hermits, they catch up to the boat, and, and they tell the bishop, we have forgotten your teaching, servant of God. As long as we kept repeating it, we remembered. But when we stopped saying it for a time, a word dropped out, And now it's all gone to pieces. We can remember nothing of it. Teach us again. (laughs) Do you see the humor in this? He gave them the formal way to pray. These guys can run across water like it's on dry land. So they're rushing back to the bishop to say, we didn't get the formal thing right. We didn't memorize it right. Teach us again. The bishop, thankfully, is humbled. And replies to the hermits, look, your own prayer will reach the Lord. Men of God, it is not for me to teach you. Pray for us, sinners. And after this, the hermits turn around and walk back to their island. It's a great example of its, I mean, it's fine to have formal prayer, but you don't need it. You don't have to have that to to reach your heavenly Father who loves you perfectly, to reach Jesus who is your Lord and Savior, as well as, I hope, your best friend. So let me just give you this. Jesus, when he talked about prayer, so often he used a lot of sarcasm. He's using sarcasm when he talks about the widow and the unjust judge in Luke 18. He's using sarcasm when he talks in Luke 11 about the the friends showing up at midnight. And we're going to talk about those in the next couple of weeks. But you see, I, I got a daughter. She's 33, Britain. And when she was a little girl, she would from time to time come to me with a problem or something that was frightening her or pretty much anything that was bothering her. And, 
And often she was not able to express herself clearly and succinctly. And other times, I think she just wanted to talk. There were times when it was obvious to me that she was troubled and confused, and, and so she would just crawl up in my lap. But you see, that wouldn't do. Like the bishop, that wouldn't do. I was frustrated and sometimes irritated with her for her lack of articulation. And at other times, I would yawn and roll my eyes when she was having trouble putting her words and her worries and her concerns into an organized presentation. So I schooled her like the bishop in how to talk to me. We practiced organizing her thoughts before she approached me. We even developed some formulas for her to use. And if all that failed, I gave her a couple of pre-prepared speeches to memorize. If she needed anything from me, she learned to present her request in an organized and formal way. That is, if she wanted to get what she was asking for. And she was forbidden just to crawl up in my lap until she figured out how to communicate better. Now, is there any chance that any of that could be true? Would any normal, loving father or mother respond to their little child like that? No, don't be ridiculous. Of course not. But it, it is how we think sometimes when we get all worked up and worried about whether we're praying correctly, we're saying it the right way, whether we, whether we need to go with a formal prayer or follow an outline. Just talk to your father. Crawl up in his lap. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that at 65, I still sometimes, oftentimes, just picture myself crawling up in my Heavenly Father's lap, just talking as a child to my Heavenly Father. Jesus, in, Luke, in Matthew 7, excuse me, said, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, you're human, you're faulty, you're frail, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? How much more? He uses that phrase how much more throughout his teachings especially about prayer how much more will your father in heaven who loves you perfectly and is perfect and always responds in the perfect way will give good gifts to those who ask him see we don't think that way do we we think we got to get things right we got to organize our thoughts we you know if we don't if we don't present it correctly let me assure you you just approach your heavenly father like any loving child would approach a loving Heavenly Father. I mean, Jesus, again, in Matthew 19, he said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In Matthew 18, they're shushing away the children. He says, No, no, bring these children over to me. So approaching my Heavenly Father as a little boy has revolutionized my prayer life. It really has. And if Satan tries to insert the image of an irritated, judgmental, and condemning God, I chase that image right out of my mind because it is a lie, and I want you to recognize that that's a lie. There's, your, Jesus would say that there's no, it's not even close. He loves you. Crawl up in his lap. And I don't care how old you are, how sophisticated you are. Try this approach. I mean it. Try it. He's happy with you just sitting in his lap, and he looks at you with love and affection. So I want you to learn to relax and see yourself as a loved and adored child as you spend time with your gracious, compassionate, and loving Heavenly Father. And please, do. Okay. Having said all that, I want to jump on another prayer 
myth or, or misunderstanding or question that we all have. And the, the first one would be, how many people do I need praying for me? Is 50 enough? Do I need 450? And we'll talk also this week and next week, how much, what about the faith of those people praying for me? What about the strength of faith? If I have five really, really, really strong prayer warriors and you've got 50 just regular Christians, is my, are my prayers going to be answered faster? I mean, tell me we don't think that way. Tell me that you haven't heard people say, and perhaps you've said it yourself, we had a prayer chain of 500 people and the Lord answered our prayer. As if, as if God Almighty, a loving Heavenly Father, would say to anyone, you only have 450. They have 500. I'm answering their prayer. I'm not answering yours. Or, or you, don't, you, don't, you don't even have anybody praying for you. And this, these people over here have 50 prayer warriors. I, I, I got to answer their prayer. Have we lost our mind? The number of people praying matters not at all. Please understand that. And I'm going to show you a passage from the Old Testament. Now, let me say this, if you're all upset with me at this point. Feel free to get 450 people praying for you. Feel free to do that. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying you don't have to do it to get God to respond. Feel free to. You may be a blessing, and the people may be blessed to participate in the prayer with you. Please understand, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying you don't have to do it. I'm seeking to eliminate the anxiety that we feel oftentimes is, do I have enough faith in my prayers? Do I qualify? Because Do I have enough faith? And how many people should I get praying? One person is all that matters, reaching out to God Almighty. Elijah on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. It's such a great story. Before I read it, remember James tells us several hundred years later, James, Jesus' half-brother, in, in James 5, 17, Elijah was just a man, just like us. He was just a man, just like us. But boy, did he really accomplish some big-time praying. He was the most powerful, famous prophet in the Old Testament. He didn't even die. He was whisked up into heaven. Well, in 1 Kings 18, he first bumps into Obadiah, who is not the minor prophet Obadiah. Obadiah works for King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, and Ahab's just as bad. But he is a, he is a follower of God. He is a faithful man, and he tells, he tells uh, Elijah that he has already saved 100 prophets. Now, keep that in mind, that he saved 100 prophets. So Elijah knows that. So then Elijah bumps into Obadiah, and he says, now, I, want to, I want to meet up with Ahab. And so Obadiah sets it up, and, and Ahab immediately, when he sees him, says, look at you, you troubler of Israel. Ahab doesn't like, he doesn't like Elijah at all. And Elijah said, I've not made any trouble for Israel. You're the one, your family, you've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout. And Elijah went before all these people on Mount Carmel and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? The Hebrew is there is how long will you dance around between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Him. The people said nothing, which doesn't surprise me. 
Then Elijah, he tells the 450 prophets to set up an altar, and he's going to set up an altar, and they're going to, they're going to offer a bull. But he, he says, now, the way this is going to happen is we're going to call on, you call on your God, and I'll call on my God. You go first, and you call on your God to bring down fire. We won't provide the fire. We'll call down on God, your God, then my God, to provide the fire. So the people all around say, yeah, that's a good idea. So, so they do this. And Elijah says, now since there's so many of you, 450, you go first. So they do it. And then they start the whole, the whole uh, praying and reaching out. So it, we read in verse 26, Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was, there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. This is some great trash talking that you find in Scripture. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. He is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Or he's busy. Or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, that's an, that seems like a wild exaggeration, but are we not somewhat like that? Do we not think that maybe he's deep in thought on something else? He's busy. He's traveling. He's maybe he's even asleep. He's not paying attention. Surely he's on more important things. He's not hearing my prayers. I better get 450 people to pray with me. Maybe if I get 450 people to pray, he'll pay attention to what we're praying. Elijah taunts him. He trash talks him. He says, no, shout louder. Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe you should show more emotion in your prayers. But nobody answers those kind of prayers. Then Elijah, he sets up his altar, butchers the bull, and he says, pour water on the altar. I, I, I want to I really drive home who's in charge here. Pour water, soak it. They do it. He says, do it again. Then he says, do it a third time till the water's overflowing. I mean, he is stacking the odds against him. One man against 450 prophets. Elijah then says a very simple prayer. Answer me, Lord, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. One man, Elijah, stood down 450 because he was in God's will, and he was representing God. You don't need 450 people to pray for you. You can get 450 people to pray. If that makes you feel better, it makes them feel better. But you don't need it. One person is all that matters. Your Heavenly Father is always looking out for you. He's always looking to hear from you. One person. But now we ask the question, yeah, but oh, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 Sam, stop. Elijah, he can do that. I cannot do that. I'm, I'm simple. I'm a simple follower of Jesus. I don't have that kind of faith. I'm not Elijah of the Old Testament. I'm not the most powerful prophet in the Old Testament. I didn't get, I didn't get whisked, whisked up to heaven without dying. That's Elijah. Like, come on, be real. Well, that's the other myth or misconception that I want to debunk, that your great faith, that you need great faith and great warriors 
if, you, if God's going to listen to your prayers. I mean, remember, James 5, Elijah was a man just as we are. And we're going to see that in, in vivid living color in the very next chapter. After he stood down 450 prophets, 1 Kings 19.1, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, I'm coming to kill you. Verse 3, this great man of faith. Because, see, you could never be like Elijah, right? Because he's, he's so staunch. He's so steadfast in his faith. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, let me just pause. We read this and see this message from Jezebel that she says to Elijah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. After he's just stood down 450 prophets as well as Ahab himself, what would you think Elijah would say? What would he, how would he respond? Bring it on. You think I'm afraid of you, Jezebel? I represent God Almighty. Bring it on. Elijah, who's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament and the greatest faith of anybody and blah, 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 Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He ran all the way to Beersheba, which is 100 miles away. Mount Carmel is in the northern part of Israel. He ran down to the southern part to Beersheba. And there he went into the desert, and he left his servant behind, and he prayed that he might die. And he whined to God, this great man of faith. I have had enough, Lord, he whined. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He's whining to God. He's crying and whining and feeling sorry for himself, this great man of faith. You never do that. You may have a stronger faith than Elijah. So let's debunk the idea that it has to be an incredible prayer warrior. Now, God comes to him and says, look, you got a long journey ahead. The ravens are going to feed you. Elijah gets up. He travels another 40 days and 40 nights without eating. He goes another 250 miles, and he goes all the way over to Mount Sinai. Now, in your scripture, it calls it the Mount, Mount Horeb, but that's the same name. It's just a different name. It's the same mountain, Mount Sinai. And he gets there. And he gets in and goes into a cave to spend the night. First Kings 19.9, And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Now, understand, God never asks a question seeking answers, seeking information. Jesus never asks questions seeking information. God never asks. He knows the answer. He asks questions to get us to think. He's saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Come on, think about it. Look what we've already accomplished together. Have you so quickly forgotten that just a couple of months ago you stood down 450 prophets of Baal and I came down and I sent fire down and just destroyed the entire altar just with fire? Have you suddenly forgot about that? What are you doing here? So the great man of faith, who, who by the way, remember, knows there are 100 prophets that Obadiah saved. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He knows he's not the only one left, but he's such a, it's in such a pity party state. He's whining. He's feeling sorry for himself. This great man of faith is pathetic, quite frankly. So the Lord says, now go stand on the mountain, and, and I'm, I'm about to pass by. Now, this is the part most of us remember. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, 
He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the Lord said again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, wouldn't we expect Elijah to be to have been reminded of God Almighty's incredible power after seeing this display of shattering the mountains and the wind and the fire? Wouldn't we expect his answer to be different? Wouldn't we expect him to say, you're right. I don't know what got into me. I had a momentary lapse in faith. You're right. I remember what, who you are and what we've done together, and my, my trust is right back where it needs to be. This great man of faith whom we could never be like. We could never pray like Elijah, right? He gives the exact same answer. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. This great man of faith did not hear a thing. He didn't learn a thing from this little episode. Now, my point is not to denigrate Elijah, but as, as James says in James 5, he's just a man. Just as we are, you are. You could pray with the same force and strength that Elijah prayed with. As long as you're praying for God's will, and that is, that is really the essence of this story. It, we don't need 450 people praying for you, and, and you don't have to worry about your degree of faith because Elijah just demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt he could be pathetic at times. So how much faith? Well, James, in that same chapter, says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Was Paul a righteous person? I think so. But in 2 Corinthians 12, we read about Paul and the thorn in his side. And he said, I asked God three times to take this thorn away. And he said, no. Paul is a righteous person whose prayer should be powerful and effective, but even God said, not in this instance, not in this instance. No, I'm not going to do it because you need to have this thorn so that you can continue to lean on me because I know you, Paul, and you'll go back to your own power if I take this thorn away. So let me conclude at the end of the show with this. Therefore, pray like this. Probably the, no, the best prayer, in my opinion, in all of Scripture we find in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has erected a 30-foot-high statue of gold. And he says, you've got to bow down to it. If you don't, you're going in the blazing furnace. And then what God will save you from my hand? And they give the best response of any prayer approach ever. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us. He's powerful. We know that. He, he's all-powerful. He's able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from it. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. So our prayer is, I know you've got all the power in the world. I know you can do anything. You can answer this prayer request. And I, for some reason or other, I sense maybe I, from you that, I, that you will. But even if you don't, even if I've missed that somewhat, even if you don't, I will not lose my trust in you. You don't need 450 people. You don't, your degree of faith does not matter. It's only what God is going to do in your life. And even if he doesn't do it the way you wanted him to, keep your trust in him. I'm Sam Hunter. This is 721 Live. So long. God's peace to you. I hope to see you next Friday.